Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. There's a thing called the sin list, standing for substitute it now. The list identifies the chemicals that are in our textiles, furniture and food and in our daily life that are slowly poisoning us, killing our bodies and our environment. Replacing that list with nature-based alternatives is the mission of Humblebee, an ambitious biotech startup by Veronica Stevenson. You may have heard of Humblebee, it's sometimes described as one of New Zealand's hottest biotech startups. Now, a few years into the journey, the Wellington Company is trying to replicate a cellophane-like substance found in bees' nests to create a harmless bioplastic. Humblebee has scored some wins recently, it's sequenced the protein in question, it's poised to manufacture its synthetic alternative, and it's in the throes of a $13 million capital raise. I caught up with Veronica to discuss biology, bees' bums, and babies. Well, thanks so much for joining me, um, Veronica, and it's nice to finally catch up despite us uh, our best efforts last year. You, we, we were interrupted. You were um, you were like the movie, Girl Interrupted by a Baby this time. But um, let's, a year on, revisit the original vision for uh, Humblebee. Uh, I have picked up from the literature and having spoken to you before that it, it was bioplastic that uh, is replicated from the cellophane-like material from bees' nests. Mm-hmm. Is that still the vision and still what you're working on? It's what we're working on, but it's not the big, hairy, audacious vision. Um, so we are, we're working on recreating that material that these special little solitary bees make in their nests um, at scale and we've had a few breakthroughs recently which has been really exciting so we were the first um, ever to sequence the genome for that bee and then isolate the gene that codes for the protein component of that nest material and then we have successfully expressed that um, in some microbial systems. Hmm. So the bee, just a source mm-hmm. about the bee. The the bee is not our native bee or your typical honeybee. Yeah, so bees, people think of bees as either bumblebees or honeybees. And there are thousands of species of bee. The majority of them are solitary or social solitary, so they live um, by themselves or in a little cluster. Um, mm-hmm. And they are between 10 and 100 times more effective pollinators than honeybees but they don't make honey and we can't have hives that we can move about as we need to. So um, we don't know as much about them and we don't farm them and we um, don't or we haven't managed to quantify the value of their um, their contribution to pollination and, and ecosystem service. So you've chosen a very hard-to-find bee that produces something that's difficult to extract. It must be something about that product (laughs) that nest material that's so attractive tell us what is Um, it about that cellophane like material that's so attractive to you well back when i was studying reproductive biology we learned about classes of chemicals that cause disruption to normal fertility and um, reproduction and uh, they are known as forever chemicals now um, or pfas chemicals and they are used in um in pretty much every industry um, globally hundreds of thousands of tons a year 
bioaccumulative, found in the blood of 99% of Americans, cause kidney and testicular cancers, thyroid and hormone disorders, um, reduce, um, reduce fertility in both men and women. And we were <clears throat> learning about this in, in my undergrad. And I remember thinking, if these are still being used, there's no way that in five, 10 years that there isn't regulation that bans these. And so I kind of just bookmarked it in my brain and started thinking about what things could replace that or have hmm. some of the properties that were super valuable. And one of those things is um, water resistance, water repellency. And when I came across a, an article about this family of bees called the Hylaeus family, um, whose nest materials were really, really stable. So didn't dissolve in really strong acids and bases um, and were water resistant. I was like, that's really interesting. And the fact that they were being used to cocoon the larvae of the bee was a contextual indicator for them being non-toxic. Hmm. Yeah. And so th that um, alternative is, uh, it, it sounds great, but, you know, as a market, I suppose you, you'd look at it and say, well, there already are quite a few plastic, bioplastic alternatives. Um, and, and you think of how many plant-based alternatives have been created and are on the market now. Mm -hmm. uh, is that uh, current product set enough for you to fulfill this bigger vision of a, of a sort of synthetic um, biology business? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing that um, I tell people and, and the, you know, the, if I said to you I had created a new metal, you wouldn't then believe I was trying to replace copper, steel, aluminium, gold, silver and everything because you understand that metals as a, as a collective noun um, all have different properties and different uses um, for, for different functions. Same with plastics. So when we talk about bioplastics, certainly not, uh, that's not just for one product, you know, like, and one, and one bioplastic is not going to, it's not like Lord of the Rings, you know, one bioplastic to rule them all is not going to happen. <laughs> um, uh, so you, there, there is a lot of uh, nuance in, in the bioplastic space and something that, when, when we talk about bioplastics, one of my pet peeves is you take you, you can take a um, petrochemical and you can turn it into a, a plastic like PET um, and you can take a an oil that you've derived from plants and turn it into a PET. Both of them have the same life cycle analysis at post-production, i.e. they're still going to break down badly into microplastics. They still have the same pollution profile and degradation profile. So just because it wasn't mined from the ground doesn't mean it is inherently more environmentally friendly. It's just called a bioplastic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And is there a particular end point that you think the the bee nest material or the, the mimicked bee nest material it would be applied in? Is there a particular application that it's good for? Yeah, so the, the first target is in uh, textiles applications, so that water repellency. Uh, but it does have other properties, which I can't talk about right now, that have just recently um come to light that are very exciting in other in other um markets uh that are very much in line with the company's mission which is to create novel biomaterials that improve global environmental health so mm. beyond 
the B um, and beyond um, bioplastics. Uh, we want to create products that improve global environmental health. Mm, great. We're going to come back to some of that vision stuff later, but let's keep talking about your, your current uh, R&D program. You've had some successes, right? You've formed, um, I think you've hired some new staff and you've got this partnership with Ginkgo. Can you explain some of the achievements in the last, I don't know, six months? Yeah. Well, um, I'm going to go back a year because it's been a hell of a ride. Uh, so since I went on parental leave, um, we have hired... Uh, we hired an interim CEO and CTO to, to replace me. We hired an operations manager. We um, got some funding for an R&D scientist. We had a partnership with Ginkgo Bioworks, which is kind of amazing. Um, Ginkgo Bioworks being one of the biggest um, synthetic biology development, product development platforms in the world. Um, and we got funding from the innovation, innovative manufacturing grant in, in Australia to partner with Deakin, Deakin University's Institute for Frontier Materials. So we can take the protein that we have expressed, give it to them, and they can turn it into some um, MVP products. Mm, that's that's very exciting. And, and are the original founders still involved? I was thinking of um, Richard Furneaux and Phil Lester, the two scientists that you approached early on and were so enthusiastic yeah. about your ideas. Um. I'm the only founder in the business. Um, they they were uh, very much enthusiastic scientists and uh, came along for a wild ride. Um, uh, Phil Lester came over to Australia and dissected um, bees for us, which is you know, outside his his normal day to day for sure. <laughs> um, and and Richard Furno, um, who has you know been part of the the humblebee story from really really early on um and he is um he's still very much involved um and as an from an advisory perspective yeah you're um going through a series a funding round i think raising what is it 13 hoping to raise 13 million correct uh, that, that that's a very ambitious number where would that money come from well, we're wanting to target institutional investors who can help help us in the development and distribution of the product. Uh, we want to partner with uh, investors who align with us and our values in terms of clean tech sustainability uh, and who understand deep tech ventures and synthetic biology. So we've got quite a specific investor profile and there are a few uh, in New Zealand and mostly overseas. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. When does that commence? The, when does that effort commence to, to raise the um, funds or has that started already? It has started. We kicked off late last year um, and closing um, uh, in March. Well, how exciting. How's it looking? Get, you know, I don't want to jinx it, but you know, how are you <laughs> feeling about it? Um, really promising. Yeah, really promising. A lot of interest from our existing investors um, and then also some international investors who are um, skilled in, in the field of synthetic biology. Yeah, given the, um, that that would raise expectations for some sort of outcome, what what do you think would be a logical outcome, or what kind of time frame would that would that imply? Well, we're wanting to. There's there are a few kind of moving parts to that. Uh, we obviously are wanting to create a product for the textiles market and the in the water repellency finishings space, but always very open to products that 
fit the same bill, i.e. Um, improving global environmental health and solving um, environmental and market problems uh, that are lower hanging fruit, i.e. kind of faster to market rather than creating an entirely new new material. So um, working in with an existing product um, might be a good avenue to get to market faster. Mm-hmm. Um, but projections are um, kind of in the, the, the five-year range from now. Mm-hmm. And and it would be probably in that textile space, you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So the, the 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 bigger challenge is this idea of um, biomimicry and and then reproducing what we see in nature. And the technology has really advanced, hasn't it, in recent years to make that possible? Could you break down, you know, what what's the technology now that has made some of these things possible? For instance, you know, the the ability to extract a protein all by itself and then and then reproduce that protein synthetically. What's the tech that has allowed that possible, Veronica? Um, a couple of things. Uh, the ability to sequence genomes really cheaply hmm. uh, and the understanding of the vectors uh, and the hosts that you put those genomes in in order to express the, the, the thing that that gene codes for. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was... For a long time, relegated to um, pharma, pharmaceuticals, because that's mm. where there was, you know, significantly high, really high margins that could justify the the expense of doing this. You know, you would by hand um, create variants of your of your gene to try and get um, or your construct to try and get a good yield um, or an easy purification out of it and now you can automate that so one of the really cool things about ginkgo bioworks is that you can have kind of between three three thousand and five thousand variants running to see which ones are going to be the best at expressing um and producing your product with the desired properties so it's just been a bit of a game changer uh, in automation um gene sequencing hmm. and being able to print dna um accurately hmm. So the sequencing and then also the the, the uh, reproduction of that DNA in, in some sort of host. So, for instance, a yeast or some sort of bacteria. Typically, yeah. isn't it? It's a it's a bacteria that is used as the host. So I think sometimes I've I've seen the word precision fermentation used quite a lot. Would that be the same sort of technology that's that you're using? Yeah. So there's. A few ways that people produce products using uh, synthetic biology. One is in plants and the other is in in, in fermentation. And so you have Mm -hmm. um, fungi and uh, bacteria and insects um, all um, being used in fermentation. Then you can also insert it into tobacco plants are really um, popular. Oh, yes. They used to splice things into. Mm. Uh, and uh, in one of your talks, you talked about hydrocortisone as an example of of the, how 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 transformative this technology has been. Can you just explain that? Because I think that's really illustrative of the potential of this technology. Yeah, sure. So back when wow, this is um, uh, let me just bring that up. So when um, they first isolated hydrocortisone, which is you know one of the things that's uh, was a game changer for arthritis uh, and, and, and joint and um, inflammation. They had to use animals, so cut up a whole lot of animals to extract and get tiny, tiny amounts of hydrocortisone. Mm. And then they were able to do uh, chemical synthesis 
which was a incredibly, now I've actually got, hang on, um, oopsie. Um, the specifics around this. So there was a, after the, it was, they could only get 500 milligrams for 45 kilograms of tissue. Wow. So, so that's, that's a lot of. It's adrenal gland tissue. So that, that's well. a lot of, lot of glands harvested from that's a lot, lot of animals. Of glands for a very small amount. Um, and then it took 15 years to create a 40 step chemical synthesis. And every step you use, you lose um, yield and you know it's it's costly and expensive and because it's you know what you've got a person who is actually making each doing each step and then they created a, a genetic construct and now you can buy it for a couple of dollars a kg really hmm. uh, what so huge game changer so the genetic construct is the is the gene isolated that's uh, applicable for coding for whatever the, is the important part of hydrocortisone is um, mm -hmm. put put into something like a bacteria um, or a yeast or, or a, um, something that can then replicate at mass scale and then harvested in a pure form, right? And right. similar stories happened with insulin, right? So in, insulin used to be harvested from pigs uh, and it was a, a similar kind of ratio of just the most incredible slaughter required for a tiny amount of insulin. Yeah. And in a synthetic process that was, you know, many, many steps, high, really expensive. And, and now through um, synthetic biology and the same process, insulin is, is now available en masse at, at a really low cost, comparatively at least. Mm. Um, and I think there's an there's a there's a, a line here too you draw with Impossible Foods, right? The the Impossible Burger. Oh yeah, they um they genetically engineered a soybean, I believe, to produce heme. So heme is the thing that makes your blood red. So mm. you know we have hemoglobin in our blood, uh, and heme being um, uh, binding to oxygen, and they they produce this soybean that um, that creates heme, so it, essentially it looks like it bleeds, and it has that metallic taste that mm. um, that blood does. So mm. but, you know it does um, more accurately reflect what it is to eat meat for vegetarians. Yeah, yeah. So this process of um, precision fermentation, or or let's obviously a subset of synthetic biology is massive applications and your vision then is to be in the business of identifying really interesting products in nature and then use this this technology to to, to sort of extract and then manufacture would that be a good summary yeah there are you know there are thousands and thousands of chemicals that are used on vast scales at vast scales that we know are a direct threat to human health and the environment and there's this fabulous list called the SIN list, which is stands for Substitute It Now. And uh, it lists all of these known hazardous chemicals. And they are, in, like, you know, there's no disputing that they're carcinogenic, disruptive and more fertility. Um, and it lists how many tons are used in what industries um, mm. and by whom. And there's just a massive opportunity to... To disrupt that and create products that um, that replace those. This is the the kind of list that would include. Well, the list would include things like endocrine inhibitors, um, which I think are the things people are pointing to for fertility, the drop in fertility, right? Yeah, absolutely. And 
something that I've I've been saying for for a while, and I've I've seen it published once. I think it was in um, the, the the press release that was put out by the Biden administration around the Forever Chemicals, and is that we've been talking about the obesity epidemic for as long as I can remember, and. I think that they've really failed to consider that the fact that we have awashed our environment with chemicals that cause hormone disruption, our endocrine disruptors, um, as a major contributing factor to, to obesity. Like if you have a baby who in utero and um, soon after birth and for their entire kind of developmental period exposed to hormone disruptors, the chances of them having a really well-functioning metabolism are pretty damn low. Hmm. And I think that we'll start to have that conversation more and more um, in, in future. In another talk I saw you give, uh, you talked about how New Zealand may have missed the boat on this technology. Is that because of our stance on genetic modification? Yeah, yeah. We we haven't really revisited genetic modification for God, 20 years. I think the bill was... Um, was put in place and we have this kind of like nuclear free it's become part of what our identity of like we're not GMO uh, except we import and sell gently modified organisms um, and it's a real shame because we have a lot of talent here for developing products uh, like we did not struggle for um, the intellectual capability um, mm. but we struggled for the infrastructure and the speed and the and the diversity and the ability to scale it. Um, so it's it's a shame because you do have people who work in this field and who know a lot about it um, who are not able to kind of practice their craft at a commercial scale. And you have, I think it was, Australia has thrown hundreds of millions at it and they're creating a centre for research excellence around synthetic biology. They recognise that they want a slice of pie that is $4 trillion. They want a piece of that. And New Zealand's just like, no, thanks. To what extent do you need genetically modified organisms, though, to produce a synthetic output? So we're not talking here about altering the DNA, say, of, of I don't know, a possum, you know, which is, I know we're going to come to talk about test, uh, pests in a minute, but we're talking about isolated bacteria and the, the current legislation or the environment you work in, would you be able to manufacture your protein in New Zealand? Not at scale. And we are doing it at small scale here, um, but not not at scale. Um, and I mean, when I talked about infrastructure before, like we have the brains to, to help us develop it at a really small scale, but... Mm-hmm. The only people in New Zealand who have vast steel drums that would allow you to do fermentation are Fonterra, and that's not what they use them for. Hmm. I can't see them ever using it for that. I think that they're probably going to be the holdouts, right? Because this is a this industry is a, a major threat to the traditional dairy industry, right? It is, and like it is my fervent wish that the people within the Fonterra. What do you call it? The, the collective? Is it a collective? Co-op. Co-op. Recognise that it would be really great if they diversified a little bit, had some of their farm for plant crops that used in fermentation and alternative milks and some of it for for um, dairy. You know, I think mm. that that would be smart. 
I think you're up against the power of the incumbent. I mean, but incumbents, if they don't adapt, then, um, you know, then people come for them. And they're actually in a really great position because they have, you know, they're fairly well vertically integrated from that perspective, right? They've got all of these farmers who have all of this land and you just, like, you can grow crops on that land and you can grow, you can raise animals on that land. So they could capture both of those markets. Hmm. I know there's a major initiative in the South Island to grow oats and, you know, we know that New Zealand yeah. is a fantastic climate, particularly in Canterbury and Southland for growing oats. Yeah. And uh, I, I spoke to um, uh, Megan Moore from Boring Oats Company who, oh, yeah. um, you know, is just doing such a great job and we have some great oat milks here. Um, so, yeah, potential's there, absolutely. You, um, you mentioned um, when we were talking earlier about pests and the potential for New Zealand to you, – you thought that this could be one area where sure. we could actually do synthetic biology or, or, or GMOs that could have an impact, right? Do you want to explain that? I do. Uh, so when you edit – you can edit – the germline, i.e. something that is hereditary um, in, in, in a species, in an organism, that means that its offspring will not be fertile. So eventually you deprive that population um, of its ability to reproduce. And so far more humane than 1080 and the traps that we, that we have, but requires us to edit the possum genome, the wasp genome, the, fa- the, the the ferret, the stoat, the rat, but like we like legitimately could beat the twenty fifty target for being predator free. Like it would be come to New Zealand and bring your earplugs because you were going to get woken up by the cacophony of the dawn chorus kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and how amazing would that be? Well, it would require quite a change in thinking and also a change in legislation right to to allow gmos to be not not just commercially done in a controlled environment but actually out in the wild yeah and that's that is a re- like what i'm proposing um new zealand how they carve out their niche it actually requires a, a, a leap in, in the social consciousness of kiwis beyond what they already have um and beyond what is like what humblebee is doing to yeah, editing something that is that does exist in the world. However, there are ways that you can ensure, um, and obviously this would need to be tested thoroughly um, on small islands, um, that you can edit the germline of the possum in such a way that even if it mated with a possum in Australia, um, that population, the, the two populations are distinct enough like if you look at a possum in New Zealand and a possum in Australia, they are quite different and, and genetically that that is um, noticeable. So you can design it in such a way that that wouldn't be inherited, that germline edit um, for uh, outside of the species or the subset. What's it been like as a entrepreneur trying to articulate these things that are, you know, they're scientifically mm-hmm. hard to explain. Uh, they you're pioneering a field that doesn't exist in New Zealand. What What's that been like? When I first started talking about it, people didn't know. People didn't know about the plastic pollution. 
and then kind of two years in, suddenly it shot up to number five, I think, on the top ten things Kiwis were concerned about. Like suddenly plastic pollution became like four of mind um, in in the consciousness of, of, of Kiwis and that was a game changer uh, in terms of people caring about it enough to want to invest. Hmm. And then the other, the other thing was people going, this seems like science fiction, like it – is this done? Like, has people have people actually done this, or are you trying to create this entirely new field? And I'm like, no, no. There's there are journals dedicated to this that have been in existence for a number of mm. decades. Um, and there are lots of uh, case studies, and um, and I actually t- caught up with an investor who invested in us early early on, and they they were like, this has come such a long way. Like now, this is an entire fields of investments mm. there are funds mm. specifically dedicated to this type of thing so yeah. the the education um but i mean in saying that like the angels showed incredible faith uh in me and the vision because even though it was super early and that the the, the education um and the awareness wasn't there they they still invested and you didn't have a track record. You were working in the film and TV sector. You had a, I think, a master's in science communication, and I, I think your your undergrad is in, uh, is in biology. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how did you convince people? You know, what is it? Is it, is it the force of your nature to convince hmm. people? Um, well, I had started. I, I mean, like I have been starting businesses since I was about five or six. <laughs> um so and and you know none of them to this level and all requiring venture funding like I had a film and production business I had a, um, a really small scale skincare um, company for a while there um and I was actually still doing documentaries and, and filmmaking when when I was doing Humblebee and then eventually you know my investors were like can we just focus on one thing please and so I, I wound <laughs> that up um I I think I was actually having a chat to um, a, a VC uh, last week and they were like, we invest in um, the idea, seeming plausible and good, the team, but the, the founder and then the vision. Um, and our our belief in that founder to drive that vision and that's why people invested. Uh, I think they, they, they believed that I was able to do it. What about you personally? How do you keep your chin up? Because it's not an easy job, right? And as you said, New Zealand's quite a tough place to try and do a startup. We're not a wash in capital. We're not a wash in connections. Mm. You've 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 had a baby in the middle of this process. Congratulations, too, by the way. That's very exciting. What do you do to you know? What do you draw on to keep your motivation? Uh, I have a very supportive board. Chair of my board, Julia Chambers, is wonderful. And um, this is going to sound really cheesy, but nature. So if I'm like going for a swim in the ocean, going for a walk in the bush uh, is deeply restorative. But I do actually think that I made a mistake early on in not finding a co-founder and going it alone and that is that's um part 
me feeling like I had to do it by myself and that I wasn't going to be able to find someone. And, you know, it was hard enough to find investors. Well, how was I going to find a co-founder as well? But actually I think I should have um, really tried a lot harder to do that uh, Mm -hmm. because, you know, I see uh, peers of mine who are able to kind of tag team when someone's like, oh, man, this is just hard. Then the other person's like, it's all good. I've got this, you know, take a beat. Uh, And there's this kind of passing of the the baton that I'd never had um, at a a managerial level. So it would be me jumping on the phone to, you know, my original chair, Greg Sitters, or to Julia. Um, But now we have a team. Like it's a very different company than when I went on parental leave. So we have Ryan um, who took over from me when I went on parental leave and we've got uh, Lauren and Anu and we just hired a comms person. So, yeah, we're very lucky uh, to to finally have that kind of team and camaraderie that I have so missed. <laughs> yeah. Has it made a difference either way for you to be a female entrepreneur? Yes, I think it has. And I think a lot of it will be... Um, unconscious uh but at the same time there are there are funds who will focus on you know focus on female entrepreneurs Um, do you mean unconscious against you unconscious against but then also there has been such a shift in going all right we all need we know that there's a bias we know that there's um you know the number of amount of investment that goes into um female-led companies is lower but we some research came coming out maybe two or three years ago that was like they received, I can't, I'm not going to quote the stats because I don't remember them and, and, and accurate stats is a, is a bugbear, but, um, you know, significantly less investment going to female-led businesses, women-led businesses, and then, then performing much better. Hmm. So I think it started, it's starting to change. Um, and then you had that kind of positive discrimination as well. So I had access to things like, for example, Springboard Enterprise Program, which is um, a female um, accelerator for, and it was a life sciences, and it is just so good, and they were wonderful, and I had access to some incredibly smart women who'd had in, amazing careers, and, you know, that was that was just for for me and for us, and, and, the, and the women that I met through that, um, through that program was, you know, they're, they're amazing people who I, you know, want in my life, so... It has it has made a difference. I don't know why, but I've got this impression that Wellington's actually quite a good place to be in a startup. It's quite a supportive community. Yeah. Uh, well, I moved from Dunedin to be here. Like Dunedin um, didn't have a lot going on. Um, I think that there is more of a, a community now than there was, um, largely because of the number of people going. Hmm, rent down there is is doable. We can we can hire people and they can afford to live and we can pay them you know wages that are not going to kill the company. Um, so it's it's a lot richer than it was, which is so cool to see because it is my hometown. Um, but Wellington, particularly for deep tech, actually, um, Kevin Shahey uh, and at the McDermott Institute and I, and I um, set up a deep tech founders breakfast where because it is such a specific and like tech is seen as this term that encompasses all of it when the problems and the the difficulties of running a deep tech company versus a software company are you know they're they're different so yeah 
we have this this founders breakfast, and there are quite a few here because we've you know got Victoria University and GNS and Callahan Innovation and the Ferry Institute mm. and the Robinson Institute. You know, there's quite a lot of uh, technical capability and smart people coming out with cool ideas. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that's that sounds really interesting. Uh, you've been described as the hottest biotech startup, or at least one of the hottest biotech startups. That's that's a bit of pressure, isn't it? Top five, top five, and yeah. <laughs> uh, it was business it uh, business <laughs> desk, I think, called you that. Yeah. Um, one of the things that is described as one of my greatest strengths and greatest weaknesses, you know how they often go that way, hmm. is the the high expectations I have of myself and, and people around me. Um, so, um, yeah, it's pressure, but probably not as much pressure as I was already putting on myself. So It you know, feels ultimately like um, Humblebee has to grow out of New Zealand. Could you foresee yeah. a time where you would move for instance, to the States, which would seem like a logical next step? Yeah, potentially. And there are, um, or we'd have a subsidiary or, a, um, you know, a Delaware Corp in, in the States. Or look, Europe's actually got a really a strong uh, synthetic biology um, field uh, and commercialisation. France actually has a really um, big, big industrial parks and a lot of government's support. Um so yeah, potentially, I think that in, initially we—I mean, like we were planning on moving to Australia. My partner and I to Australia in 2020, April 18th, 2020, and um, yeah, you know what happened. Uh, so <laughs> that that plan has been somewhat derailed. But we do have—we have investors in Australia. We have, you know, the B is Australian. We have. Um, uh, government funding in Australia and we have a, a research partner in Australia so I think the first step will probably be Australia uh, mm. and they they have you know more more infrastructure for scaling more capital uh, and certainly more government support what do you think is the near future I'm thinking say in the next five years for mm. Humblebee but also perhaps the sector, can you see other companies like yours emerging from New Zealand? Just sketch us what what a bright future looks like for you and for the sector. Um, it may not be bright. Look, I mean, <laughs> the, the, it would be great if we were scaling, you know, like scaling our products um, and we had – you know, a couple of variants that were being um, sought out and, and, you know, we had in, intentions from customers who wanted those products. And the mm. strategy is to go for large, um, we're a B2B, so large um, businesses to to allow our products to have the largest impact. And I would love to see more companies in, in New Zealand. Um, it, it's difficult. I think it... Um, I'd really love to see uh, Maori get get involved in this hmm. uh, in this area um, because without buy-in from that community, it's going to be really hard. The there are international regulations like the Nagoya Protocol around bioprospecting and the use of genetic material for commercial gain. Uh, and so, if we're going to if you were going to do that in New Zealand and you were going to take for example, just off the top of my head, we have um, 
totorol, which is a an extract from the totoro tree, which is incredibly good preservative and used in cosmetics and very high value. You, you know, you get a small amount of, you get oil out of the tree. What if you could create that at, at scale? But that would mean engineering an endemic species and and messing with its with its mouldy, you know? Mm. But also so, what an opportunity. What an opportunity. But you, I mean, we can't, and and there's a, there's some stuff going on, um, Y262 under the Treaty of Waitangi that's kind of being discussed and debated within um, different iwi at the moment. And, you know, I think it does need to be led by, by Māori if, if we're certainly if we're going to be using biological specimens from that are uh, native to New Zealand. Mm, mm. Well, such an emerging field and such a, an exciting um, opportunity for change for you personally, but also for New Zealand. Let's keep a, a track on it. Um, Veronica, it's delightful talking to you. I'm I'm pleased that um, it's only taken us eight months, but we've finally caught yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. I think we tried to, we were trying to schedule it like when I was in my first trimester and I was like, I just am feeling really sick. I don't know why. I'm really <laughs> and like, oh, this is why. So thank you for your perseverance, patience while I grew a human so that we could have a chat. Oh, well, that's, that's um, the, the very best reason to um, to delay a chat. And we will speak again. Good luck for the fundraise and um, for the success of Humblebee. Thank you so much, Vincent. Pleasure talking to you. This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. 